0: So anybody who has any uh, questions that you'd like to ask, based uh, particularly on the, the Dhamma talk that Luang just offered, then please, uh, this is the time for that. Uh, I would uh, request that if uh, people could wait until the microphone gets to them before asking the question, so then the question can be recorded as well as the response. Uh Lung Por, I wanted to ask, um, how can one tell the difference when one thinks that one is in the state of awareness between the state of awareness and a state of dullness because in the state of dullness there are no thoughts in the mind either uh, and it feels very comfortable and uh, pleasant to be in um, and I'm sometimes unsure which which one I'm in <laughs> Well you have to trust yourself to to, you know, if, if one is, uh, thinks that, that the state one's in is dull, that's the problem. <laughs> it is the way it is. Just keep going like that. And, because, uh, you know, they, this realm we're experiencing is a, is a realm of continuous change. You know, so we have to deal, you know, in this kind of ongoing, experience of the human form and the conditions affecting it. So, uh, certain conditions where, when when we control uh, sensory, like sensory deprivation or that we can, you know, there's a certain level of peace or tranquility that comes through just not being uh, irritated by strong impingement but it's also trust yourself to know it's like this and then then any doubt you have just observe you know doubt is like this and then more and more you'll you'll just have more confidence what you need is just more confidence to be the observer <laughs> cuz when you think about it You'll get caught in doubt again. <laughs> like doubt is—it's important to recognize. Like doubt is a result of attachment to thinking, <clears throat> and. uh I've talked a lot about this because you know this is this was my my problem. I was you know I have a skeptical mind uh, and uh, doubting. I'm a doubter, and so this was. Uh, and because I was also uh, thinking a lot, and this thinking would inevitably, uh, you know, would. The result of it was never being sure, feeling insecure, not knowing, and uh, doubting everything, and doubting myself, doubting whoever, and uh, and that's why what attracted me to Buddhism, particularly, because the initial, the initial interest arose through the kind of Zen Buddhism of the 1950s, you know, becoming. Uh, a uh, kind of fashion in the Bay Area in the United States and the Zen koans and paradoxes and all that Americans were discovering, a paradox, which was never really a word that I ever heard before. And because in the kind of cultural background, my own cultural background, it was it was either right or wrong. there was just two, you know, kind of fixed uh, positions. And, and then, you know, in the Indian system, you've got right, wrong, both right and wrong, neither right or wrong. So, I mean, it, and that, you know, both right and wrong, neither right and wrong is bewildering, to If you you know, you want everything to be either it's right or it's wrong. If it's not right, it has to be wrong. And if it's wrong, it cannot be right. And, and it goes like that. And then Ajahn Shah was, you know, I remember one time, saying to me true but not right, right but not true and, I, and that fascinated me because you know in, in the way my habit pattern was saying if it's true it's going to be right and if it's right it must be true but then this is a different way, it's more intuitive and you, gives you more possibilities where so much, so many of our mistakes is is, is uh, you know, a belief in what we think is right, but, and then, but it's not, you know, and then we try to force our views on other people, even though they're right, but it's not very much sensitive to the, to what you're doing, you know, so that's why, you know, religious fanatics, you know, have good intentions to convert everybody to their beliefs because they're right. But the way they do it is, you know, hold a gun to your head or whatever. <laughs> and then they, you know, the way of reflection is more. even though I might have very good ideas, and very high-minded ideas, if I'm forcing them on you, what you're experiencing is my tyranny. You know, what you're feeling is tyranny. You're not feeling, maybe I'm talking about fairness and justice and freedom and all these high-minded things, but but the way I'm doing it is, is like uh, trying to dominate, force you to agree with me, then what you're actually experiencing is being uh, tyrannized by me. So even though what I say might be right or true, you can't really appreciate that because what you're experiencing is tyranny. You see, that's where the... Uh, the uh, mindfulness is where we begin to see you know we we can you know what is righteous indignation you know where we uh feel you know something is really bad and we've got to you know do something about it and uh and then righteous indignation is a very strong emotion and uh like you see it happening in in religions everywhere where they kind of you know, the opposite side, or the heretics, you know, burn the witches, kill the, hang the heretics, or, uh, you know, stone the adulterers, and things like this, all based on kind of moral righteousness. As a reading about, uh, you know, uh, what, revenge in India, like uh, these problems in, like in Pakistan, where... uh, uh, a girl marries a, a boy, and the parents don't approve, and they they kill the girl because she's brought shame on the family. You know that's that's righteousness, isn't it? They, they're feeling righteous about it, and and dishonoring the family. But to to me, dishonoring the family would be to murder. <laughs> so it's. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is also very cultural. There's nothing absolute about it. But the way that we can get behind whatever cultural biases we're operating from is through mindfulness. Because wisdom is universal. It's not, it doesn't belong to anybody, in any religion even, or any group. But it's available to all of us through awareness of Dhamma, knowing the way things are. Any more questions? Thank you, Longpore. I have a question about mindfulness and it's ubiquitous now as you know there's even a picture I saw of British parliamentarians having a mindfulness session and I even hear that the American military are learning mindfulness techniques. I come across books on mindfulness which have no reference to Buddhism in the book at all. And I was just wondering what your thoughts might be of this kind of decontextualization of mindfulness from the Buddhist context. Thank you. Well, like, like the, the foundation of Buddhism, you know, Buddhist practice is uh, like you have dana or generosity and thila. So you have morality generosity and morality as a foundation for mindfulness, and, uh, but mindfulness, you know, is, uh, you can, you know, you have to be mindful to commit a murder or rob a bank or, I mean, it's, (laughs) you can train yourself in various ways through, through mental training to, to be you know be more accurate and more precise and and uh, the military they 're trying to reduce the amount of post traumatic stress syndrome and you know to make uh, soldiers more you know not get caught up in in that kind of emotional trauma that they have to experience and you 're involved in military actions well you know it 's some people, you know, think you shouldn't teach mindfulness to the military but um, I kind of feel, you know, even if you do, at least it's you know, it's a beginning, it's an opening and how far it goes but even if you're planning to use rockets and that's better to be mindful with them than heedless uh, but this is not Buddhism or anything. It has nothing to do with liberation or, or wisdom. It's just kind of mental training, and and so many of the mindfulness practices don't use Buddhist terms in any way. You know, they they don't want to be connected as a to religion because there's this bias against religion now, it's like that religion is, uh, you know, a subject that people, you know, in the West, in the Western world, don't like to uh, bring up, you know, it's not, you don't mention it at parties or anything. Uh, and you, and then it's, uh, you know, religion, religious forms are varied and, but we, you know, the problem with religion is being blindly attached to the form of it without realizing what you're doing. So then you you know you become a a Buddhist or a Christian or a Jew or something rather by this identity with the, with a religious name or or ceremony or uh, culture. But like with Buddhism, you know, like in Thailand, it's mainly a Buddhist country, and most of the people, you know, 95 percent would consider themselves Buddhist. But how many really understand it, you know? How, how many really are mindful of it, or is it just a cultural identity? And that's the problem with any condition, you know? It, it's, uh, you know, you can be a member of the Green Party or conservation movement or pure air and become a fanatic, or the, uh, the ones who uh, who are against abortion killing the doctors that performed <laughs> this is this is uh you know absurd in a way but it's it's a position one takes that blinds you to to what you're actually doing and what you're actually thinking and of course the thinking process leads on you know if you start from abortion is evil and bad and immoral, then the logic from that is that anyone who performs them is bad, evil, and immoral. And then the idea that to kill them is is, uh, a good thing to do. I mean, there's a kind of logic there, but it's based on ignorance and not understanding. I don't know what the thing about, you know, what you were saying, you know, how far it will go, but I mean, <clears throat> it is uh, now in the consciousness of Western world, where we, say 20, 30 years ago it wasn't at all. You know, people, you know, didn't, uh, didn't know what that meant or didn't use the word, but now they do. You know, it's used for everything, but You know, they, uh, they, it has different uses and different, like for reducing stress, stress reduction or dealing with chronic pain and so forth. You know, mindfulness will help no matter what, in terms of like so much of our stress and, and neuroses are caused through just blind habit patterns, not very skillful ones, that that we keep uh, repeating over and over, and not knowing how to deal with it, or what to do about it. Uh, so, and mindfulness, you know, good mindfulness therapy will let you become more aware of what, what you're attached to, and why, you know, why you're attached to these things, uh, and that, that's certainly helpful on a, on a personal level. But saying, with Buddhism, it's for liberation, from ignorance, so it's it's taking mindfulness to its ultimate ability to to free us from old illusion and And I really like that you know the the uh, sequence when the, in Theravada Buddhism we dana, Sila Pawana, you got the, the the path of a Buddhist, you know, like dana and Sila. It's like generosity and morality are, you know, they they're very, you know, if one is generous and responsible for one's actions and speech, then you develop a sense of self-respect. You're worthy of respect because you're you're you know you're operating from you're not being stingy and mean-hearted and selfish or operating, or just doing whatever impulse might arise in your mind in terms of action and speech. So, you know, in Buddhist countries, you know, they encourage sila just for lay people, you know, to, it will increase uh, their happiness in life. And and if somebody is generous and and responsible for their action and speech, they're also... Uh, you know appreciated by others, you have friends you 're not a threat uh you know, you know you're you 're becoming a good person uh, and and a good citizen and a good father or mother uh and trustworthy and people will trust you you know telling lies is a you know is uh being untruthful it means that uh, nobody will trust you when they find out you, you lie. (laughs) So, so it's, and, and then if you're just using power and intimidation and fear techniques, you know, you can control a lot through making people frightened and afraid, but you know, then that leads to all other problems, you know, hatred and revenge and secret societies and Clandestine actions and so forth, and you know you get very paranoid and suspicious because you know there's the enemies behind these pillars are waiting for you outside the door. <laughs> Cause you you know it it builds these neurotic patterns of fear and paranoia. But Donathila, they they give you know it's like an hiriotapa. The, this ability, like, here is like self-respect, living in a way that's worthy of respect. And uh, let's say that's like Sila. You know, you're living your actions, your relation to your own life, your own body, and the society you're in is, <clears throat> you know, based on not exploiting others, being responsible. Right speech, they, <clears throat> nowadays people talk about free speech, <clears throat> and they've got all this political correctness, afraid, you know, you, you might offend somebody. Uh, so they have all that kind of go to the extreme of political correctness and yet at the same time free speech. And yet I've never heard so many four-letter words being, or not many four-letter words, but the ones that are constantly used. You hear all the time now. I mean, in America... <clears throat> You know, that's the kind of language we used when we were sailors out at sea. (laughs) And now everybody speaks like that. (laughs) And so, it's, uh, you know, there's this right speech, there's free speech, maybe. And and in Berkeley, when I was there in 63, there was this free speech movement, you know. Mario Savio and the the ability to use four-letter words in public, because at that time you weren't allowed, you know, it was wrong, criminal action, to use four-letter words in public. Now it's all right <clears throat> to use them in public speeches and so forth. So this is uh, free speech, but then what is right speech, you know? waja. Uh, and this is what the Buddha was propounding, was right speech. And that takes the level of sati sampachanya and wisdom, doesn't it, to know when to use what language to use, how to convey ideas and and that through through the languages that we speak. Uh, so you're not you know, you're not intentionally you know, you're not just heedless of the people you're with, so you use words that that are offending them, if you know that, that certain words do upset them, because you want to communicate with them In a way, not through just blatant speech habits, but through, you know, usually when we're in public situations, we're trying to to use language for communication, for understanding. But if I use a lot of words that just create a lot of emotional problems in your mind, it's, you know, I'm free to do so, supposedly, but it's not right speech. And so this is like right action, right livelihood. That's the that's the moral part. It's like being responsible. You know, we do have this ability to speak. <coughs> we can use it to to lie, to deceive, to curse, to to abuse uh, other people with, uh, you know, insulting, uh, harming them in some way. Uh, we can use speech for you know, write beautiful poetry, or we can use it for technical reasons, for buying and selling products, uh, for communicating, or so much of speech can be just habitual blah, 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 you know, (laughs) just uh, conceptual proliferation, diarrhea of the mouth, we call it. So, So that's not right speech, you know, and uh, but th- this takes a certain commitment to, to, and ability to be aware of a time and the place, what to say, what is appropriate, what can people receive now, what is, you know, what, is, uh, you know, you pick it up intuitively on the, the people around you, the atmosphere you're in, and that takes a certain level of openness and sensitivity. It's not a prescription. I I can <clears throat> say whatever I feel like in the moment, whatever comes into my mind, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, unless I'm crazy. You know, I'm kind of mentally off the track and don't have any feeling for time and place. And action uh, you know, and and right livelihood, right action, right livelihood. Then this this gives us the the sense of self-respect. You know, because you're worthy of respect if you if you if you live with that, those those uh, with Dona And uh, and uh, Otapa is more like decorum knowing the result of bad action or bad, wrong speech and being knowing how to relate and how to uh communicate or how to what actions to take in a particular situation where you know if you're uh a psychopathic killer you might be very mindful around weaponry and very clever at knowing when to strike and when the police are there and all (laughs) that. Certainly mindful, but it's not coming from wisdom or heriotapa or donosila, but from ignorance. But, you know, it is a certain mindfulness to be able to get away with things. But mindfulness in itself doesn't imply morality. Where, you know, the base is like, mindfulness really comes with pavana, you know, where you develop it through pavana. So you've got dana, sila, pavana. Can I just ask, um, how old were you and what was it that drew you to become a Buddhist in the first place? You want to know my life history? (laughs) (laughs) It's like... I don't even understand it myself. (laughs) But it, um, I I came across, even though I was aware of Buddhism, you know, I was born and grew up in Seattle, Washington, northwest. And I also, uh, before I was in the military, I had two years of undergraduate work at the University of Washington in the far eastern department, I always have this fascination for Asia China, I studied Mandarin when I was 17 years old, and Chinese history in the, the University of Washington, and <clears throat> there's been this fascination for, and it's not, you know, I don't know where that came from because it's not part of my cultural or social background at all, so I, I met the Master Xuanhua years ago in California who was a Mahayana monk and he told me we were monks in China in a previous life. (laughs) He and I together. I I think, well that's a good enough explanation. (laughs) But I don't really know myself. But the, the, uh, when I, I encountered Zen Buddhism in Japan when I was in the Navy, U.S. Navy, which was around 1955. And uh, I was on a supply ship from San Francisco to the American bases in Japan. Uh, We used to, it was a cargo ship, and we'd take supplies of beer and cigarettes from from the States over to the the people in uh, the, uh, Yankees in Japan, and this was, um, and in Japan, because I had this this interest in Asian culture and Asian things, and, <clears throat> you know, anything Asian would kind of trigger off some kind of interest. And, and, I, and somebody gave me this four-volume set of R.H. Blythe's uh, Translations of Haiku Poetry, which was published in Japan at that time, it was uh, it was rather a nice set of uh books named after the four seasons and uh and i- thought, I was quite interested in that in haiku poetry and then they mentioned Zen Buddhism and I'd heard somebody say some friend of mine when I was in uh, university of washington uh, he was very very cynical person and very Uh, critical of any religion. And and so he had this very cynical attitude about religion. But he did say to me once, he'd heard that Zen Buddhism was all right. (laughs) (laughs) So when I had these uh, haiku poetry books and then they mentioned Zen Buddhism and then this very cynical friend uh, had said, Zen Buddhism is all right. I kind of took an interest, and, and at the time, like in San Francisco, which is a home port, they, they were publishing the uh, D.T. Suzuki's books. He wrote in English, actually, I think in the twenties or thirties, uh, but they were out of print. And in, in, in then, at that time, 1955, they were uh, in the States at that time, it was called a paperback boom. because. Before, paperback editions were all like cheap pulp fiction uh, kind of things, you know, not very good literature, and, and if it was considered good literature, it was hardback. But By 1955, they were publishing paperback editions of Shakespeare and Victor Hugo and you name it. They were available, and they were republishing D.T. Suzuki's. Works in paperback, and so I found found a copy in one of the bookshops in San Francisco, and that really set me off. Like I I used to get high as a kite just reading, go out to Golden Gate Park and by myself and and read D.T. Suzuki, and think this like something in me was so awakened through that kind of way of thinking uh and and i it was very intuitive because if you 'd asked me what it was about, I probably wouldn 't be able to tell you you 'd think I was crazy or something you know i was because I had no way of talking about it, and i didn 't even know why, but I had this tremendous fascination for this way, for what I was reading in these books and and that That's continued up to this present time, you know. That was about 20, I was 21, 21 years old. This is, I'm 80 today. So what it is, you know, that, 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 that propels us in the directions we've taken, you know, I don't really know myself. I feel like, like, you know, when I, when you really get to know your personality, you know you really understand what personality is what sakaya ditti is what the ego is you know it's 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 nothing it doesn't have any soul or heart to it it's just a conditioned way of thinking and perceiving and it's totally untrustworthy but beyond the personality is uh, there's uh, this intuitive was where you connect to a universal intelligence or or you know, the world soul or spirit or whatever you want to call it. It's, you know, don't don't you know, you Buddha nature on the different ways of talking about it, but the words don't really matter because it's it's unnameable really. It's you can't describe or conceive it, but you feel it. Like the more you open to the present, the more you feel, the more you're aware of a universal reality that that operates through these forms rather than your own personal conditioning and and uh, habit patterns. And so this is, and then the, um, I became fascinated with Krishnamurti when I was in graduate school. And so I used to read uh, anything by Krishnamurti. And he inspired me, but then I found that, uh, you know, he was, he was very negative towards religion and uh, critical saying, don't meditate, don't do anything. Just go out into the, with nature and listen to the sound of the wind and the birds. And so I used to go out into the Berkeley Hills, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and Berkeley has the universities on the flatland and then above are these beautiful hills you go up there. And, Open to the nature, and uh, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> My mind start getting caught up with doubt and and restlessness and so forth. So, uh, you know, I, I realized Krishnamurti was, you know, he uh, he was uh, he didn't give me anything to to use, any practical method or anything. So, <clears throat> when I I started taking interest in Theravada that's that's what I liked about the Theravada school cuz it it's very practical and you have you have things you know like four noble truths and teachings from the suttas that you know at first you grasp so it's all about not grasping you know the essence of buddha's teaching is non-grasping but in the beginning, you need to grasp because that's what you're used to. (laughs) And if you're going to grasp something, grasp something good, you know, and then you become aware of grasping, you know, so it's a... and that's where Krishnamurti, I was grasping the idea that you shouldn't grasp anything. And, and I didn't have a clue how, because I was so caught in that, that habit pattern of thinking and And grasping even what Krishnamurti was saying, and I remember he used to get exasperated sometimes with his own followers, like because they'd be they 'd say you know he'd say there are no krishnamurtiites and and yet he'd get he'd even show a lot of anger and dosage kind of character, and uh, because people were going around saying they, they weren't didn 't belong to any religion, but they were krishnamurtiites, and then <laughs> <laughs> there are no Krishnamurtiites. And that is like the life of Brian. You say, we're Krishnamurtiites that aren't Krishnamurtiites. <laughs> it's absurd. <you> know? <laughs> so it's not about where, where like, uh, you know, just going to Bangkok at first when I was a layman, I, I started meditating at Wat Mahathat, one of the big temples in Bangkok and with the burmese method the mahasi method and that gave me something to grasp in the beginning you know so you, you you've got this uh, rising ceasing practice uh, and you observe the rising ceasing of the abdomen and and you know it gave me something to do at first that uh, i wasn't just left there you know they're just open to to the universe even though that was inspiring to me that's what i wanted to do but I, I you know I understood the words, but i didn't know how to do it so, in the beginning, it was just learning concentration to concentrate on uh, something happening now, like breathing, uh, which had never occurred to me <laughs> you know when you 're thinking opening to nature then you're kind of expecting something to happen, and you're not aware that you're expecting something you know you're waiting and for some kind of you know like flash of light or thunder or brilliant experience of enlightenment but nothing happens but your mind just gets more negative and fed up and decide to go to the pub. <laughs> well at least with writing, ceasing and then, the, then I found the that's why I always mention the Four Noble Truths because I found that that you know was such a, an insight for me to to have that form to take because I I suffered a lot not because of uh, I was being persecuted or abused by anyone it was just, it was the suffering of my own mind and in the Peace Corps I went in the Peace Corps 1960. Four sixty-five. I was in Malaysia, in Sabah, in North Borneo, and I was in this kind of tropical paradise, uh, this little seaport on the east coast of Sabah. And now it's a resort area <laughs> for scuba divers and whatnot. But it, uh, at that time, it just uh, Saba and Sarawak had just been released from the British colonial system and and were part of the Federation of Malaysia, so that was absolutely new, so the old British colonial structures were still operative while I was there, and in fact, the district officers were British in the town I lived in but there I had, as in a tropical paradise, I had taught taught English in a Chinese uh, school in this. Little town and and uh, it was quite pleasant. Chinese children were much easier, much more obedient, much more polite and respectful than American children, and so it was quite easy, <laughs> quite pleasant, and uh, so I didn't, not terribly stressful. Had time to snorkel and and swim on in tropical islands and go boating. There were three Chinese millionaires, they were smugglers to the Philippines and they'd, they'd put on uh, these incredible banquets and the only time I've ever had a taste of Napoleon Brandy was in semporna this little smuggling port on the east coast of Saba. And they import the best kind of things for us. So here I was, in, you know, having a good time, tropical paradise, pleasant work, good friends, but I, I managed to create endless suffering in my mind, you know, that wasn't, I couldn't blame on anything around me. So it became obvious, well, you know, it doesn't matter where I go, I'm going to take suffering along with me. In a tropical paradise I suffer, go back to Berkeley I'll suffer, Wherever I go, I take it with me. Uh, how do you? What do you do about this problem? Is there an escape from suffering? And of course, in the in the sixties, you know, at this time, the drug scene was was developing to, to, you know, quite rapidly, and and so everybody was into drugs and things like that. And, and so I thought maybe I'll just become a drug addict and uh, and just drown myself in drugs till I dropped dead, because i I realized there you know I felt this kind of despair with life at that age. I was thirty years old, except this one hope, one interest was in Buddhist, Buddhist meditation. I still had that, and of course. Malaysia, the place to go when you're in Malaysia, if you're a Buddhist, is to Thailand, because it's nearby. So I went to Thailand, and from there, you know, after I uh, finished my contract with the Peace Corps, I went and started practicing meditation at Wat Mahathat, which led me on to the present scene. But it's, you know, this... this because I never thought of myself as a special... Or unique kind of character, I, I more or less had assume that I was a kind of misfit in that society. <clears throat> I didn't see myself as a kind of leader of mankind, or you know, a mystic or some highly spiritual being. I saw myself as a kind of uh, maybe misfit. Something didn't quite have the f- the whole deck of cards that some people seem to have. <laughs> and so I... I uh, but this one interest in, in Buddhism, you know, has pursued me from 21 year, from the age of 21. Well, that's a gift, isn't it? Where did that come from? I don't know, you know. Because I wasn't the only one influenced by Zen Buddhism at that time. It was quite fashionable in the Bay Area, you know, the beat Zen movement, and it was quite, you know, trendy. And so, and yet, how many really ever became monks or nuns, you know, or had any inclination in that direction? I don't know, but this this uh, has led me to this point. And now, you know, I'm at the end of my life, so it, you you look back and you just see how you know, what it is, like the, the force of goodness or wisdom is operating in all of us. And now I say it's just a matter of opening to it rather than trying to find it or become enlightened, as like on some personal journey or, or trying to get something, but just because the Buddha's teaching, like when it was about opening, letting go, not, not becoming anything. So, in other words, it's like you're already there. You don't. You're here, here and now. It's not something you lack, but you just don't remember or recognize. So, like mindfulness, then is being able to remember this to the true nature, you know, the true, the ultimate reality is with us all the time. And then when we let go of these conditions that limit us all the time. Uh, through, our th- through this blindness, through this ignorance, then we, we don't know that. We get caught up into, into all kinds of mental, emotional habits that, that destroy joy and make our lives quite unpleasant.